sing the stanzas 11, 12, 13, and 16. Beloved brothers and sisters, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you consider yourself a grateful person? How much time do you spend thinking about your blessings compared with thinking about your troubles? Or how much more do you talk about your troubles versus talking about your blessings? Some of us do face many great sufferings in life. But almost all of us do spend a lot of time, some perhaps an inordinate amount of time, dwelling on the negative things in life. We complain about our sufferings. We complain about our failed plans. We complain about the troubles that others cause us. And we do this even though God's Word is very clear. It says, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the Word of life. Do everything without complaining or arguing. That's Philippians chapter 2. And we are not the first of God's people to be too quick to complain, and too slow to talk about the, the blessings that God has given us as we, as we sung from Psalm 78. Too often we do not recount what God has done to help us in our troubles. We just dwell on the troubles that we have now. But we are not the first, and we might be quite quick to be condemning of the Israelites in our text. What they do is, is unforgivable, isn't it? After all God has done for them, we might say, how could they possibly treat him with such disrespect and such ungratefulness? But we ought not to be so quick to shake our heads at them. As we'll discover, we ourselves are hardly any better, and arguably our sins, our ungratefulness is much worse. And that's why we and the Israelites desperately need a merciful God. And so in our text today, we will see a complaining and ungrateful people. And we will see a God who at first appears to be a consuming fire, but in the end also proves to be greatly merciful. And so that's our theme, an ungrateful people and a merciful God. And we'll see this in the the two separate complaints of our text. The first complaint is in verses 1 to 3, and then at at Taborah, and then the second complaint at verse 4 and following from Kibroth Hata'aba. So our chapter begins, and the people complained. And it's interesting, I think, that it says that the people complained in the hearing of the Lord. Because we might say, well, isn't everything we say in the hearing of the Lord? But these words are added probably to indicate that the people's complaints weren't just sort of general complaints. I wish the the desert sun wasn't so hot. I wish walking wasn't so difficult. But no, these were complaints that were specifically directed at the Lord. How could God cause us so much trouble? Why is God putting us through all this misery? Doesn't God love us? And it says that the people complained about their misfortunes. But that word misfortunes is really a stronger word. It literally means 
evils. They're complaining in a sense that God has done them evil by sending them through the the desert to put them through all of this suffering. And Hebrew makes clear that this isn't just one complaint. These are complaints that are going on for some time. Now, if we think about the Israelite situation, we might sympathize. Have you ever had to walk for day after day through the burning sun in a hot desert? with your children and and animals in tow, having to to muster them through as well, knowing that that these days of of walking through the the hot desert will be followed by, by untold more days of walking before you finally get to your destination. I haven't experienced that situation either, but it doesn't sound like fun. They were having a hard time, and they made sure that the Lord knew about it. But unlike us, the Lord is not sympathetic. Our text says, when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And the Lord's response here shows his judgment, but then also his mercy. The people are are, um, doing a great sin here. They're complaining, despite God having carefully looked after them. It is God's gracious care that they are now calling evil. And God does not commit any evil, and he will not stand for being complained at as evil by his ungrateful people. And so in his judgment, he sends fire. And that judgment might seem a little quick to us. There's no real warning at all. The people complain, and then bam, fire starts consuming things. But there is a history to this. When the Israelites had first left Egypt, they had been a complaining group of people. They had complained about enemies when enemies came nearby. They'd complained whenever they lacked water, whenever they lacked food, whenever anything was going wrong, they complained against the Lord. But now they had been at Mount Sinai for almost a year. They'd heard God's voice in, at the, from the top of Mount Sinai in the fire and the thunder and the smoke. They had received God's good law. They had seen the, the tabernacle being built and the Lord himself dwelling there in the tabernacle in the midst of them. And we might have hoped that all of this, maybe especially receiving God's holy law, that that it had changed them. It had made them a more holy people, made them more loving and and more patient. But it had not. Three days out from Mount Sinai, almost the first thing they do is to complain. They're immediately back to their old sinful ways again. And does that remind you of yourself at all? You commit some pretty big sins Losing your temper, blowing your top at your children again. Falling for that sexual temptation again. Disappointing your spouse or your parents in that same way again. And this after having the last time, having promised yourself that you will not do it again. This is the last time, I swear, I'm going to change my ways. But we change so very slowly. We are very quick to forget those promises that we made to ourselves or or even to God in the heat of temptation. Now, your indwelling sin that that you keep returning to, it might be ungratefulness and, and complaining, just like it was for the Israelites. Or it might be a different sin altogether. 
But we are certainly no better than the Israelites. They had Mount Sinai and the, and the tabernacle and, and God's law that should have taught them better. But we actually have something much better than the tabernacle and the law. When we meet here in church before God in worship, what we are doing, Hebrews says, is we are coming to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. It says when we are come here in worship, we're gathering with all of God's people. We're gathering, as it were, before the heavenly Jerusalem, and we're gathering before God himself, the judge of all. And so we come before God himself in worship twice, every Sunday. And yet, how quickly we go back to our old sinful ways. And so God's judgment against the Israelites is also then a warning to us. God will not stand for his grace to be mocked. The fire of the Lord is coming, and he will one day burn up the entire earth and everything in it that is sinful and unclean. But God's judgment in our text is also a mercy. For notice that God's fire only burns up the edges of the camp. There were likely no people and perhaps even no possessions there. The outside, outside of the camp was unclean. It was where the human waste and other unclean things were kept. So God sent his fire, but before consuming the people, as they no doubt deserved, he gave them a warning and a chance to repent. And we see they quickly did repent. They cry out to Moses, it says, and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. But just like we should know better than the Israelites before we fall into sin, we certainly know better than the Israelites after we fall into sin. For the Israelites had Moses, they cried out to Moses, and Moses is their mediator pleading to the Lord on their behalf, and God listens. But we have a much better mediator than Moses. When we sin, even when when we sin multiple times, again and again like the Israelites did, each time we can cry out directly to the Lord. We do not need a human mediator to plead on our behalf because we have Jesus Christ. He stands at God's side as our mediator and he pleads for us on the basis of his blood shed for our sins on the cross. And so though just like the Israelites, we certainly do deserve to be burned forever in the fires of God's judgment. When we come before God in repentance and sorrow in Jesus' name, God's fiery judgment is turned away from us and we receive his love instead. And so because we know Christ, we do not need to despair when we sin again. Instead of throwing up our hands in despair, we can throw up our hands in prayer, beseeching God for his mercy and knowing that in the name of Jesus Christ, we will find mercy. For Hebrews says that when we come in worship, we do not just come before God who is the judge of all. We also come, it says, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so, brothers and sisters, when you come before God in Jesus' name, with him as your mediator, the blood of Jesus is sprinkled on you, and it washes you clean 
from all of your sins, both now and always. And that brings us to our second point, the second complaint and the second judgment and also mercy of the Lord. Sadly, the people of Israel did not listen to the warning or, and they did not fear God's judgment. Because in verse 4, pretty much right afterwards, they complain again. And again, humanly speaking, we might sympathize with the Israelites. For this complaint, it did not really originate with the Israelites themselves. They were egged on, as verse 4 says, by the rabble. People who were living among them, but who didn't really belong to the Israelites. They didn't really believe in the Lord. They, they didn't serve the Lord. They're just following along. And their complaint is also understandable. Manna is the only thing that they get to eat day after day. And it's getting a little tiresome. And perhaps you know the feeling. You cook too much of something for dinner. And so you eat it the next day for lunch. And there's still some left over. So you eat it the ne- that same day for dinner again. And then you just can't stand to eat that food anymore. And so a little bit guilty at the waist, you throw it in the garbage. Well, imagine how the Israelites must have felt at having to eat manna day after day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for basically a year now. And they're facing the prospect of many more days of eating the same food until they finally reach the promised land with all of its food. Now, verse 7 and 8 do tell us that the, that the manna tasted delicious. And it was a very versatile food. They could do many things with it. And Psalm 78 even calls manna the bread of angels. But even angel cakes get a little bit tiring if you have to eat them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for years. And so we understand they're a little bit tired of it. And in fact, who knows what would have happened if they had politely asked Moses and said, Moses, can you ask the Lord if there's any possible way he could give us something different to eat? Maybe some meat or something like that? Would God have understood him? Would he have answered? Well, we'll never know because they didn't do that. Instead, our chapter tells us that they cried and they wept against the Lord, and not just some of them. Verse 10 describes how Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. So they're all standing there at their tent doors, weeping and moaning for meat. This is a full-blown temper tantrum by the entire nation against the Lord. And their complaint in verse 5 is this. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. And now the the wicked ungratefulness in this comment is, is astounding. Because even if the meat and the vegetables that they ate in Egypt cost no money, it certainly cost them a lot because it cost them their freedom. They were in captivity. They were slaves. It cost them their future generations from Egyptian abortion as babies were ripped from their mothers as soon as they were born and drowned in the River Nile. And verse 6 is almost certainly a lie. Now our strength is dried up and there is nothing but this manna to look at. They're trying to claim that that eating this manna has has brought them close close to death. They They simply cannot go on living if they have to do it anymore. 
But God has provided this, this bread of angels for them, and God certainly would have made sure that this manna had the, had the nutrients that they needed. They were no doubt in the health of their lives. But verse 4 tells us that they had a craving. And that word craving from verse 4 is the same word used in Deuteronomy 5 for the 10th commandment when it says, do not desire, do not crave, do not covet your neighbor's house. And literally, verse 4 says that they were craved by a craving. It's speaking about how this is as strong a desire as you can possibly have or imagine. They wanted meat more than they wanted life itself. And there's a lesson here for us. This is the lure of the casino and why people buy lottery tickets or engage in betting. This is the feeling that that every commercial on TV and every billboard at the mall is trying to provoke in us. If you just buy this thing, your life will be fulfilled. They're trying to awaken a desire in us, as it were, greater than life itself. And strong craving is, of course, a sin against the tenth commandment. You shall not covet. And their gluttony in, in verse 33, when they finally got the meat, is a, certainly a sin against the sixth commandment. But at the heart of it here is, is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. At this moment, they had made food, particularly meat, ultimate in their life. They had given meat the significance that we only ought to give to God. If only we had meat, we will finally be happy. That's why they could say things such as verse 5. When they said that, they really meant it. At that moment, it truly would not have mattered to them if they had to go back to Egypt, back to slavery and bondage and torture, if only they could have the thing that their hearts truly desired. It sounds unthinkable, what they did. But we do the same thing all the time. We attach ultimate significance to things in this life. And what is there for you, brothers and sisters, that, that you love more than anything? That you would be devastated, your life would be over if you lost it. It might be an object, some, some possession that you have. It, it might even be the people in your life. Or what is there missing in your life that you're constantly obsessing over and thinking about? That if only you had it, your life you think would finally be complete. You would, you would finally have a fulfilling life if only I have this. Again, it, it might be money. It, it might be some sort of possession. It might even be people. It might be a, a, a good friend, a spouse, children. Or why is it that we have those indwelling sins that we talked about in our first point? Why do we have these things that we know are wrong and yet we can keep on going back to them like a dog returning to its vomit? Why do we do what we know is wrong? Why do we do what we know will not ultimately satisfy, but will just leave us dirty and ashamed? Why do we deliberately choose to do what we know will hurt those we love? The answer is because at that moment, 
the craving for whatever that sin is, is greater than life itself. It's greater than our love for, for God and our desire to obey Him. It's greater than our love for the people in our life. We do not care what happens to them so long as we get what we crave. And it's that total craving that's overcome the Israelites. They must have meat or they will die. Without it, their life is not worth living. So that's the 600,000 Israelites, excepting Moses. What does Moses do? Well, Moses hears the people weeping, says verse 10, throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the Lord is furious with the people, and Moses is also displeased. But Moses is not only angry with the people, he's also angry with the Lord. And he says to God, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? And Moses talks about as if God has made him the people's mother, as if he has conceived them, and it's up to him to carry them through the desert and make sure that they reach the promised land. And he ends his complaint by saying, where am I supposed to get meat for all of this people? And there's a lot we can learn here from Moses' complaint as well. Like the people, Moses' complaint is understandable from a human perspective. The people are acting like a whole lot of little children. And as the parents among us will know, having just one or two tantruming toddlers is bad enough. Imagine if you had 600,000 of them. And it is true, it is too much for Moses to look after the people all on his own. But his complaint is also too much. When Moses says in verse 11, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? The word ill there is the same word for misfortunes that the Israelites spoke in verse 1. Moses is making the exact same sin they did, complaining that the Lord has treated him evilly by making him responsible for the people. And Moses, with this complaint, is quite simply wrong. God has not laid on him the burden of this people. Certainly, he is appointed leader and and he has responsibilities. But it is God who is their heavenly father. It is God whose task it is to take care of them, to lead them safely through the desert to the land that he promised to give their fathers. Moses is being incredibly arrogant to think that that task has been given to him and that responsibility is on his shoulders. He does not have the strength. And in verse 15, he commits the same sin as the the people. He says, if you will treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight. His, His trouble, his suffering is the most important thing in his life to him right now. He would rather die than face his misfortunes anymore. And this also is idolatry. This also is a different way of making life all about ourselves and our wants. It's not just when we make possessions or or people ultimate in our life that we are committing idolatry. When we make our troubles and our sufferings ultimate in our life, then also God is no longer first. And we know that we are doing this if our life is filled with complaining. When we hardly realize the the blessings that we have been given, instead we always look on the, the negative side of things and we're always grumbling or complaining. And as I said, some of Moses' complaint is, is true. 
As human leader, it is too much for him to be on his own. And God will deal with the the true and the reasonable parts of Moses' complaint. In verse 16 and following, he'll appoint 70 other elders to share the burden of the people with him. But the Lord also makes very clear that Moses' problem here is that he is underestimating God. And if he has more trust in the Lord, then he would not be so desperate and he would not be so angry when the people fail and complain. And Moses does the same thing again, underestimating the Lord when the Lord promises to give meat for the Israelites for uh, not one or two or five or ten or twenty, but a whole month. Moses says, where are you going to get meat for all of this people? And the Lord says, is the Lord's hand too short? Now you shall see whether my word will come true or not. And we see how the Lord does so. He sends quail, enough quail to feed the entire Israelite nation. And when he does so, when the Lord sends all of this quail, the people collect it greedily. All day, it says, and all night, and all the next day, they're grabbing, grabbing, grabbing. And their craving becomes unbearable, and they begin to gobble the quail down, and the Lord's anger is kindled against them, and he strikes them down with a very great plague because of their craving. And we're familiar with the saying, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. But worse than that, is when the Lord gives us what we crave. Romans 1 talks about how the Lord gives unbelievers up to the lusts of their heart. He he allows them to chase after their, their deepest cravings. And He gives them up into deeper and deeper sin and debauchery. But the Lord does that, we see in our text, to His people sometimes as well. And He does that to discipline us. Discipline, never forget, is not so much about punishing us for our sins as it is about teaching us how to serve the Lord and teaching us His law. And so sometimes the Lord does not prevent us from giving full reign to our sinful lusts. And then He allows us to experience the full consequences of our sin and debauchery. We have to face the hurt that we have caused those we love. We have to deal with the damaged relationships Sometimes we have to face earthly punishments. And we certainly have to face the guilt and the shame of what we have done. And God allows us to go through all of this so that we will learn. So that we will learn the evil of sin. The damage that it causes our relationships. And how if we leave a craving unchecked in our hearts, it will grow and it will grow until it becomes unbearable and impossible to ignore. But God allows us to experience the full consequences of our sin most of all so that we will learn to seek full forgiveness in Christ. We very quickly learn once we face the the full reality of our sin that we cannot hope to earn our forgiveness by, by doing some good deeds to make up for the evil that we have done. Because our evil will always be greater than our goodness. And we cannot make up for the harm that we have caused others. The only way out is forgiveness. To have our sins simply wiped away, gone. But that is exactly what we have in Christ. Without earning it, without any merit of our own, Christ's blood simply just washes our sin and our guilt away. 
as if we'd never done them at all. And finally, God also disciplines us so that we will learn to find our, our life in God. Only when we seek Him with all of our life and we love Him with all of our heart and soul and strength will we find true joy and true satisfaction in life. And then, as we seek the Lord with all of our heart and strength, then the cravings of our sinful flesh will begin to grow dim. And then we'll also be able to learn how to do everything without complaining or arguing. When our desires are focused on ourselves and our own wants, then we do have much to complain about because life doesn't go our way. And just like the Israelites, when we complain like that, humanly speaking, we often have good reasons to do so because we do face a lot of trouble. We do face suffering. People do hurt us. But when our joy is in God and our desire is to love Him, then we can say no to our desires, no to complaining and arguing, and instead we can meditate on the rich blessings that we have in Christ. Even though we do face trouble in this life, we have complete, undeserved forgiveness for all of our sins. We have the blessedness of eternal life as our hope to, to look forward to at the end of this life. And then we can find true and lasting joy in loving God and our neighbor in all things. Amen.